I think it's a hard ethic because you could do something very drastically wrong and you really didn't because you didn't foresee and you just are not in a position to know what the consequence might be, especially long-term. Welcome everyone to the Faith Recovery Podcast. Uh, normally three failed pastors are here, but Alex is out sick today, so it's Nathan and Kent. What about Mike? His church what, went out of business. Are you? That's right. Mike's our stand-in third failed pastor. Thanks, thanks for for uh, failing. We appreciate you. Welcome well, to the club. We have Mike Harper. Did the best I could. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> thanks, Mike, for joining us again. We are um, going to pick up where we left off last week and continue our discussion. Mike brought some questions to us. He's one of our precious listeners and he's asked us some questions and we're trying to um do our best to answer those hey mike how did the how did notre dame do this past weekend can't now you had to start like that didn't you? Uh, uh, I, I believed we were friends right brothers, <laughs> brothers in christ i sincerely yeah. don't know yeah they, they lost it was fairly bad why don't you give them a nice paper cut and put lemon juice in it that's right they lost to usc so oh that's a, that's a big one, right? That's a, that's a, that's a classic rivalry, right? Yeah, it is. It is. Oh, well, I'm sorry to bring up sore spot, sore subject. Yeah. Harsh. I know. It's tough. Well, on that note, let's dive right in. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and we want Mike to feel one down. Right. Yeah. Before we begin. <laughs> right. yeah. Demoralize him real quick. We'll be ready. <laughs> well, Mike brought us some questions and we uh, at least attempted to uh, address those last time about the Bible, about the gospel, um, and pro progressing from there. And I'm going to pick up with what I think is a really clear question, and, uh, uh, that you asked us that I think, um, builds upon previous questions. Um, and, and is it, unless Mike, you had a place you wanted to start, maybe you walked away thinking, oh, I know how I want to frame my next, my follow-up question. No, I don't think so. I think picking up where you left off is, is completely fine. Okay. So here's, here's where I'm picking up. Um, it's in your question number five, what's wrong with drawing general principles from the Bible to apply to life? If we can't do this, how can a generalized gospel handle very specific moral issues? That's a great question. I walked away from our conversation last week, kind of thinking on that of myself, um, say for example, you know, in, in, in traditional Christianity and traditional Christian ethics, we look to the Bible to answer various questions. Like say, <laughs> say we're tackling the subject of like, um, capital punishment. We'd go back and we'd search through scripture. We might pick up that verse in Genesis that says, um, if man sheds man's blood, then by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in the image. Of, for man is made in the image of God. Yeah. And, and you might pick up a whole, you know, string of verses from Genesis, from Genesis to revelation to support a biblical ethic on the, the dignity value of human life. And maybe in support of the death penalty, or maybe you may pick up on a similar string of verses in, in opposition to the death penalty. Um, and you might, cause the Catholic church has a consistent life ethic. So you. That would be like maybe an example we could talk about of what, yeah. what Christians tr traditionally do, which yeah. is look to the whole Bible and maybe when they're at their best, they're looking at like the progressive revelation of the Bible and the narrative, the narrative that's evolving, um, uh, that, you know, maybe comes to its culmination in Christ and the gospel, but they're still looking to the whole Bible 
to look for a, a biblical ethic on sex, marriage, capital punishment, you name it. Yeah. Um, and sure. Ethan, are you suggesting that there's something fundamentally flawed about that, that in fact, we have to look to the gospel alone and let, um, the, and re and then let the rest of the Bible be kind of relativized by the gospel alone approach. Maybe you could put it, 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 is that what maybe Mike is sensing we're saying, and, and that raises the question, wait a minute, are you saying there's not a place for making these arguments for a biblical whole Bible, uh, point of view on things? I, I think so. I don't want to, I don't want to straw man, um, Nathan either, but I think consistently through, and again, correct me where I'm wrong on where I maybe have missed some things because I, I for sure have not listened to everything, but, um, but I think Nathan would, would say that his, one of the ethics that kind of flows from some of the things that he's talked about is faith working in love. And so yeah. that's one thing I heard consistently throughout that is that's an extension of, I think what he would say the gospel is. And I, I, I'm not sure if that's where you're going to go in the answer, but I think that's, I want to let you know that that's at least what I've heard. It's yeah. a little bit more than the gospel, but the gospel extended is faith working in love. And then how do you, how do you cash that principle? I guess out. And I think you've talked about some of these issues before you've kept brought, brought these up before a little bit too, not, not an array of issues, but some issues I think you guys have worked on. Sure. So could we talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think the question might be twofold. Uh, one is what's the, what's the value of the Bible ethically? Um, uh, how, how could we use it responsibly? Is there a way, uh, then, then the, the other one is how good something as general as say the story about Jesus death for our sakes and resurrection, how good does something so general uh, replace that, uh, as an ethic where you have, you know, 1300 pages in a good large print Bible, you know, how is that replaced by this 23 word affirmation? Jesus died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was raised again. Um, you know, those, those kinds of things. And, um, so that according to the scriptures, I, I think it, in, in first Corinthians 15, three and four, Paul gives one of, of several statements throughout his writings of what the gospel is, but it, it's according to the scriptures. And, uh, you know, Paul is in this same kind of challenge as uh, you go through the book of Romans and he's taking great pains to say that, um, conforming to the prescriptions in the old Testament was not how you become righteous. Uh, you know, throughout the book of Romans. And yet he continues to affirm the origin and the value of the scriptures. Yeah. He'll say that the law is against us and then he'll say it's holy and righteous and good. Um, so I am just suggesting that we maintain that approach that hold that tension when it comes to our approach to scripture, that we are informed by it, that it provides us wisdom that it, um, articulates and illuminates the gospel, but that the gospel is the ultimate and final revelation of God's character and will to humankind. And so 
uh, if we are left with just one ethic, then the gospel is that one. Um, and, and so I would say that the Bible has great value in that it, it, in the old Testament, it gives us this texture depth to the gospel. It, um, gives us this, um, a, a clearer depiction of who is Jesus, what is his purpose, what has God been working out, it, it affirms it. You know, if you look at all of the presentations of the gospel in the book of Acts, except for the one on Mars Hill in Acts 17, the rest of them rely heavily on, old, on the Old Testament scriptures. Um, and I think we would do well to, to regain that approach to teach the Old Testament scriptures to those who don't know them, and then to show them Jesus through them. But that the ethic, if, if I were to just go to a deserted island and I found a, a people there and I said, everything has been created by a loving God and he, you know, that you sinned against him and that you've ignored him. You've not been grateful to him for his gifts and yet he has sent his son who's died on your behalf and he's declared that his love for you and, and his care for humanity and that he's raised his son from the dead who now you know he reigns on high and he's coming back to judge the world and he invites you into his kingdom to be his subjects but also his co-heirs congratulations and those people believe that and then i a big tsunami comes through and washes me off the beach and I'm gone. Right. Like, uh, say with Philip, you know, uh, in Acts eight, Philip. Now that guy has a, a copy of Isaiah, which uh, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts eight. Um, but Philip is spirited away literally after he baptizes this eunuch. Okay. So this eunuch's got one of the 66 books of the Bible and he has a story about Jesus. And apparently the Holy spirit thought, He's good. He's got everything he needs. Um, so what I would contend is, is that those people can then live very different lives. They can live holy lives. They can live righteous lives just on the basis of having believed that story. If they will continue to act as though they believe it, that there is an obedience to the story that we're called to. And that the obedience to that story is the essence of scripture. It is the work of scripture to bring us to loving God and loving each other. That if, if, if something, so the scripture's point is the purpose of all scripture is to bring us to love God and love others, let's say. And the gospel achieves what the scripture calls us to. So the scripture calls us to something, but, but it depends on it our resources, our wherewithal to get there. The scripture starts us at the bottom and says, become a lover of God and a lover of people. Whereas the gospel comes and says, you have been made a lover of God and a lover of people. Now live that out. So it, the gospel achieves what the law requires. And so that's how Paul says, we, we don't, not only do we not nullify the law, we will fulfill it that it has this reason for being that the law does. And so Deuteronomy 30 speaks of this circumcision of the heart that God's going to perform on Israel. 
that he's going to achieve within them what the law has been calling for. And so if, if those people go and they live from that moment on in a genuine love for God and a genuine love for other people, however that society configures itself from there is going to be its own expression of God's purpose for humankind. Um, so all I have to say is that when we see the gospel is paramount, it allows us to see the prescriptions as either helpful or in some cases not. In some cases, the, the prescriptions throughout scripture, if we were just to, you know, go on a full fundamentalist and say everything that the Bible says to do, I will do and everything it pre and it precludes, I will, I will do without, you know, um, and, and then we get to old Testament commands about, you know, stoning someone to death if they commit adultery and stuff like that. And it becomes very difficult to live it out line item. Um, we can say, well, we're, we're just under Matthew through Revelation. But as you read Matthew through Revelation, it doesn't seem that the authors of those books are legislating the new covenant so much as they are commenting on a new covenant that already exists. And so Jude says, I've written to you to contend for the faith once and for all delivered. So the faith was delivered before Jude wrote his letter. The author of the Hebrew letter says, you know, God, who in various times and various ways spoke to our fathers, um, it has in these last times spoken to us, has spoken by his son. And so the, the revelation that the, as the people are writing the new Testament, they seem to be writing back into the revelation of the new covenant. Um, Luke, I've written this for those of you, you know, uh, so that you can know the assurance of what you have heard. And, and so. This seems to be uh, supplemental and uh, commentary, but that the, the core was already present at the writing of the New Testament. And so we, I think we have to treat the New Testament as it is a, a guidebook, a commentary on the New Covenant, but we have to take the New Testament at, at what it says that it's not the New Covenant, that it is a book about the New Covenant. Um, I think I had a, I have a couple, couple follow-ups to that. And, and one is kind of maybe asking about a clarification to what you're saying to see if what I'm thinking matches up with what you're talking about. But then I have a, another point, another bullet point, you might say to, to kind of go to with that. Um, would you, would you say then that, um, a, a view of the gospel, the way that you're presenting it at its core uh, particularly as, as, as you've unpacked and said, the New Testament is, is maybe an exposition of that gospel and application of that. Would, would, um, would you, would you say that, uh, that unpacking of the gospel in those specific situations, because it seems like that's what you're saying is that the gospel is sufficient mm -hmm. to be able to serve as a core in which we draw some ethical or principles that we would apply to to human conflict, to ethical conflict, to relationships, that that exposition, um, could, and I think you're saying that it, it, in many cases we could look back to it and say, uh, yes, there are good applications of that and, and bad applications of that. I think you're, you're drawing us. I think that's a fair criticism. Where, how do we distinguish that? I guess is a question that follows up. 
how do we distinguish that it's a good and a bad application? I think we, I think part of the challenge I have too, is that it's, it's easy for us to kind of sit, you know, 2000 years later and be kind of anachronistic came back and make that kind of judgment about what we thought were good prescriptions and bad prescriptions from the gospel. Right. right. And so, um, in some ways, you know, we're looking at those prescriptions and drawing a conclusion about what the true gospel was now, because right. we said, well, this is a good or a bad prescription. So now the gospel has to morph to whether we thought it was a good prescription or a bad prescription. And then I, and then one thing I think, and I don't think you're ne- you're intentionally overlooking it, but it seems like, I think Jesus kind of does this in the gospels, or at least as the gospels are explained to us and what he articulated is that, uh, the sermon on the Mount is a, is a really interesting passage, you know, is that here, you've heard it said this way, I say it's actually this way. And I kind of, I think it gets it to the heart of what you say is that the gospel is what he's really trying to get at when he unpacks the sermon on the Mount, he's trying to say, no, I'm trying to get to the innermost part of who you are, your heart matters more than necessarily this prescription that you've heard in the past. Is it really penetrating who you are as a person, which God cares most deeply about? I think there's true. I think that's consistent with what you said, but it's definitely much more explicit given the Sermon on the Mount, because it's addressing very specific issues and tells you some very, I mean, I think it's specific guidance, you know, mm-hmm. but it's, but it's, uh, it's definitely a different perspective than that's prescriptions that they had heard before that. Sure. Yeah. Well, and I think, uh, as you, you talk about being anachronistic and, and the idea of using the new Testament as our ethic is anachronistic. Um, really nobody thought about that until Martin Luther, probably, <laughs> um, uh, I guess that, you know, if you look at the early church fathers, they're writing epistles and they're encouraging people to pay attention to the previous ones. But it seems if you read, say, first and second Clement, that it reads a lot like Paul's epistles. And I don't think, uh, Clement was, um, attempting to write scripture or, or claiming some sort of, uh, you know, what is it? A direct plenary inspiration or something. He's just simply saying, I've been living with this message and here's what I think the church should do. Um, and Paul seems to be doing that same thing as I read his works. Um, but you know, the sermon on the Mount, for instance, is as compelling and wonderful as it is, uh, probably didn't come along till several decades after the birth of the church, as far as in a written form, uh, there, obviously there seems to have been a Jesus, an oral Jesus tradition. Um, and as these uh, apostles began to realize, hey, this this uh, return of Christ isn't going to be in my lifetime and I need to write this stuff down, they did. But as far as we can tell that the Gospels and, you know, I want to make a distinction that the Gospel is, as I'm using it, is that which is preached. It's an oral word. Jesus died for your sins. He rose again. He's coming back. That the Gospels are part of the New Testament canon. Um, and as compelling as those are, they came later. They are a word to a redeemed body of people who are already living the Christian life. So the Sermon on the Mount is not the impetus or the basis of the Christian life. Um, it is an encouragement to live the Christian life and a, a description of it. Uh, maybe a way to look at the relationship between the gospel and the um, scriptures 
would be uh, to say that the scriptures, the New Testament scriptures especially, are fish and that the gospel is how to fish. Uh, it is the net, the boat, the lake. Um, and, and so what we see in the epistles, so Paul writes and says, don't, you know, sue one another or submit to your husband or, you know, however, whatever the, um, ethic is that we see in the new Testament, that these, they don't stand on Paul's authority. Paul didn't seem to assert some implicit authority to legislate our lives or anybody's life. He was simply expositing the gospel. He says, Jesus is the head of the church. So Christ is the head of or so that the husband is the head of the wife, or he would say, you know, you shouldn't sue one another because Jesus, you know, gave up himself for you and we will judge angels and all of these implications of the gospel are part of this. Um, all of these, these kind of ethical prescriptions in the new Testament about sexuality and everything are all, all couched against the gospel. So he says, die to these fleshly things, rise to these esoteric and lofty things. Again, it's woven into the gospel and it reverberates out of the gospel. So when, you know, we speak of, of, um, things that are time and culturally bound, it's, I, I do think it's unfair for us to say, um, the new Testament doesn't fit, a enlightened Western worldview. So let's redact our understanding of the new Testament and then claim to be biblically based. That's not fair. But if we say, no, our message has always been Jesus died, he rose, he's coming back. And, um, that the implications of that change. And so from person to person, from culture to culture, and from time to time, as it was so designed by God. And so Paul was very adamant that the Gentiles not be circumcised. Now, if you were a Jew in, in the first century, that would have sounded like a violation of Genesis 17. So Paul is insisting that people violate Torah, you know, uh, and, and yet Paul is saying no, because the, the paramount importance is this story. And the story says we are accepted, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of faith. And so we, we have to be consistent with that. And we have to maintain that Gentiles can come as Gentiles and the Jews can come as Jews. Um, it, it, there is this flexibility and diversity that is mandatory in that story. It's required of us from that, that story that the acceptance implicit in the story insists that we be, we form bodies that are, that are both cohesive, but also diverse. That's implicit. So if you want to ask, well, what's the core ethic of the gospel? The core ethic is we are, we are to love one another, but not conform one another. And so this is this revelation of God, this beautiful mystery of God. Um, but that also has written into it the idea of multiculturalism that it's buzz, it's a buzz now, but I mean, and I can go and just show you it. It's just like objectively Paul insisted on multiculturalism. This isn't us conforming to a cultural norm that has arisen in the past three decades. This is ancient. We did it first. You're trying to keep up, you know, but if we have, if we follow a covenant of prescriptions and we say, you know, we say over in Timothy, it says women are supposed to be modest. And that means that they have to wear a frock. 
all right, and a veil and they're, you know, and, and now we've prescribed the culture. We've mm -hmm. violated the gospel while we say we're keeping a rule from the Bible. You know, can, can, uh, can we, can we look, I mean, I think one of the interesting parts that you just brought up was that, um, the example of circumcision. And I think acts does a great job of kind of cashing the council out about that, but it, that's an interesting case example for what we're talking about too. I think, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but the, I mean, the, the determination of the council was that the Gentiles did not have to be circumcised and he, I mean, Paul advocated that for sure. But they also said that, I mean, I would, I would kind of summarize it as that they, they didn't want them to commit idolatry and they didn't, they also wanted them to have a, a pure sexual ethic as well. And right. so they said, yes, you don't have to be circumcised, but please do say these things about idolatry. Do you say these things about uh, your sexual ethic? And so that's, I, you know, it's kind of a weird, it's kind of a weird case example in one sense, because they're picking and choosing some things. I think circumcision has, especially for men, has an interesting, thank God I'm a, they chose that one, you know, Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, the other one's kind of like, okay, now I, I can't, you know, I can't eat blood sacrificed idols. I can't be sexually promiscuous. So you hear, you know, I mean, even though he advocated that, I mean, why, why is that off the table then if, if, if that's the case, right? So why, why can't it be back on the table? I, obviously it depicts a a very specific covenant. Well, it seems to have been a pragmatism because Paul goes through in Romans 14 and in first Corinthians eight and says, it doesn't matter if you eat meat sacrificed idols. Yeah. So it's not some, it's not a prescription. You know, we don't read acts 15, 24 through 29, this letter and, and just maybe we should parse it, read it or summarize it. Cause our sure. listeners want to all know what, what we're talking about. Yeah. So this letter to the Gentile believers from the council in Jerusalem greetings. Um, go ahead, Ken. Well, um, I don't know if I want to read the whole part, but it's okay. just, uh, the, the, the final conclusion that they draw. Where is that? Okay. I think it's verse 29. Okay. You are to abstain from mice. Well, let me I'm back up one verse. It seemed good to the Holy spirit and to us. Not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Yeah. yeah. And, and again, I, um, I mean, maybe it softens that prescription a little bit. You'll do well to avoid these things. I mean, it's almost yeah. like there's some latitude they've granted a little bit there too, but they're trying to, they're trying to corral some things, I guess. Right. But I, I think the, I think, I mean, I get your point too. The, I mean, I think the original question is, you know, maybe, maybe we just look at the new Testament according to the way that you're trying to think about interpreting this is, is that how consistent are these, these prescriptions and these specific situations, how consistent are they with this gospel and, and how can we connect dots? between this specific example and these prescriptions of how it does fulfill the gospel or how it actually is deficient from the gospel. I mean, would that be a fair way to try to say that's kind of the work we have to do? Yeah. I, I think that what we have to, the, really the work we have to do is we have to learn once again to exposit the gospel into our lives. And I think that it's such a foreign concept. If I say the gospel is a sufficient ethic, people can't get their 
hooks into that. They're just like, I don't know what you are saying, but it, it, for Paul, it seems that it was something, it was a needed skill that everybody had to have. Now he did it for, for some people and that's where we get the letters, but he also seems to be surprised that they needed that help. You know, he's like, I'm astonished that you, uh, you know, are breaking up into different sects, you know? And he says, was, you know, was Apollos crucified for you and, and all of this. And he, he, he seems to, to be scratching his head and saying that the ethics should have grown out of what you knew already. And the fact that you didn't connect those dots is surprising to me. Um, and I think that in every case where he's giving them kind of what looks like prescriptions, he's simply expositing the gospel and, and he's somewhat chiding them for not being able to do that for themselves. And so, um, the author of the Hebrew letter, he, he says something really interesting. He, he talks about how milk is for those who are, are at yet mature. They're not ready for solid food, but then he, he talks about what it takes to be mature. He said that solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So it would seem that, you know, where we would go and, and perhaps go into a closet and read a text and try to ascertain lists of good and evil. Um, the author of the Hebrew letter seems to suggest that, that this word of God is something that we put into practice and in the practicing of it, discover good and evil. Um, and so there is this, just as with Acts 15, I, I think that the proof is always in the pudding. So whereas in Acts 15, they, they prohibited them from eating meat, sacrificed to idols and things strangled, right? Um, that, and it says you would do well to do such things. But then in Romans 14, Paul says, but don't worry about it. You know, just go ahead and, and you can eat that meat. Just as long as you know, it's not causing a problem for somebody else. And I think that was the reason for the requirement. And, and the more we understand the consequences of our actions and can account for them, the less we need prescriptions. The more we begin to understand the essence of good and evil rather than, you know, prescriptions are for the immature, for people who don't know that which is beneficial versus that which is hard. They, they can't um, envision it. They can't predict it. They're not able to recognize that if I do X, negative consequence Y will result. And so they just need someone to say, never do X, right? But once somebody begins to understand the connection and they realize X and Y are connected in this way and that, that Y is what we don't want to have happen, our, we don't want our brother to stumble. We don't want the gospel to take a black eye. You know, we don't want those who would otherwise believe to be somehow chased off by our actions. So X is connected to Y in that way, but not in every circumstance. So do X when it doesn't cause Y. Avoid X if it might cause Y. Does that make sense? And so what he's saying, the more you use it, the more you'll understand the X and Y connection, the more you'll be able, you won't need someone to just tell you every little thing to do or not do. You can understand the ramifications of your behavior. And the reason you can understand that is because you have seen the nature of reality 
and the nature of reality is revealed in the story about Jesus. Okay. Okay. I think, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm, I kind of lay a little bit of my cards on the table when I hear you say that is that, and I think both of these things are at work in what you're talking about. So I'm not, I'm not being super critical about these, but one thing is that seems to be a kind of a consequentialist ethic, meaning you're, you're kind of driven by the fact yeah. that you have, you have to anticipate or at least understand and, and, and you've said that you maybe have to experience some of these things to kind of draw those conclusions. And, and you're, and you're relying upon other people who have had those experiences too. And the consequences mm -hmm. that they talk about, I think it's a hard ethic to live because sometimes we just don't know the consequences of actions. And so that becomes challenging. And I think it's a hard ethic because you could do something very drastically wrong and you really didn't because you didn't foresee and you just are not in a position to know what the consequence might be especially long-term. I mean, not just immediate, immediate consequences are maybe more, you know, more handy, handily, readily available to kind of see what might happen, but trying to think about how that has long-term repercussions is even more difficult. But again, I think there's a place in the Bible for that, for sure. I, I have no doubts. I think there is utility in the Bible for sure. But I think, I think primarily the Bible, at least even in Old Testament, even the prescriptions, I mean, I think, I mean, if we want to talk about 10 commandments being moral principles of some sort, I think it's driven primarily by a deontology of a principle-based ethic. I think I, I, I shouldn't say primarily because I would say, in, and I think in accordance with the gospel is it's, it's primarily a virtue book. It's trying to get at who is, who is this person, Jesus? He is the moral example of who we are to be like, and he, he has lived this life. He's demonstrated what a sacrificial life is like. He's risen from the dead. So this is like consistent with what you're talking about. So he, he is the virtuous example. So I think primarily the Bible is a virtue ethic book, but I don't think it can be divorced from the fact that it gives us some very specific principles to be able to live that virtuous life very very clearly and understandably. Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult to call it a virtuous ethic book just because there's so much in it that I think a lot of people would call non-virtuous. Um, sure. Yeah. Sure. And, but I think that's vicious, right? I mean, that's the comparison, right? That, yeah, I mean, it, it's God is calling us to live his virtuous life that he's demonstrated through who Jesus is. Right. And so he's the, he's the moral example of what a virtuous person would be like. And that's what helps us to kind of say, well, I don't, I don't live up to that kind of life. I don't, this gospel life that he is, he has lived and that we, at least I think consistently with what you would say is that is proclaimed by Paul and the apostles is, is, is what our example is supposed to be like. How do, how do we live that out? Right. And again, it, I think, I think that's one of the criticisms of a virtue ethic is that sometimes it's hard to say okay, what does this virtuous person, how do they act in this certain situation? Because we, we don't have a specific example to draw upon. So we have to kind of think about how does it apply to a lot of different ways. I don't think that undermines the whole case that it's, that it's calling us to a, a virtue ethic type of, uh, understanding, but, um, he is the example, but that, that, just, that means it also shows what viciousness is too, right? It shows it, 
yeah, we don't, this isn't the way we want to live either. And there's plenty of examples of that. Yeah. I'm just saying that God at times calls for genocide and, you know, those sorts of things. So it's, and I don't apologize for that because I, I think that the, the gospel or the Bible is calling us to a relationship with God beyond our preconceptions of him or our idea of what's right and wrong. I mean, what, what, what brought about the fall of humankind? Wasn't it, um, an aspiration to know right and wrong apart from a relationship with God? You know, they didn't reach out for the tree of death, uh, or they didn't reach out for the tree of omnipotence. They reached out, you know, and, and took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's this aspiration to build some sort of an, an ethic of a prescribed ethic that becomes our downfall. Um, you know, if we say, well, what's critically important is the dignity of every human being. That's the critical value. And I, I reading a book about humanism and that's what he comes down to. The problem is, is who decides that? And, uh, what if somebody is not treating someone with dignity in my view, my estimation, what am I going to do about that? What will I do to them? Uh, and all, all of a sudden it goes off the rails. Um, that there is this need for an implicit trust in God, and, uh, you know, this offering him his due, which is this reverence that is beyond all things. Um, and, and the gospel, I think, calls us to that. Then the particular outworking of it becomes situational. Yes, I am talking about situ situational ethics. I think that's the only ethics there are. Prescribed ethics are, are just, um, draconian death marches, um, with, you know, people aren't being called to actually make decisions, uh, based on right motives. They are just being called to conform to a prescribed standard. Um, and you know, I'm a lot more afraid of fundamentalists than I am of pragmatists. Uh, the fundamentalists are the ones that'll round you up and, and, you know, they'll, they'll quash any pity they have, uh, for the sake of their principle and, uh, that terrifying, but the gospel calls us to an enlightened pragmatism. When Jesus says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It is by, I think they'll connected by knowing the nature of reality. We are free to live accordingly. And so Paul can say, everything is lawful, not everything's helpful. Well, that's only true if you can somehow ascertain what's helpful. The problem is, is apart from the gospel, apart from this meta narrative, uh, this, this grand purpose, then we don't, we don't know what's helpful because we don't know the destination, you know, helpful really speaks to a, a progress toward a destination. If it's but I don't know the destination. How do I know what's helpful? And so when, when we made that shift and all things are lawful, so there's no more transgression, there's no uncritical conformity or, or obedience to a standard. There is simply the question, are we moving closer? And so even the, even the prescriptions in the Bible become subject to that question, which is why Acts 15 says, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. And Romans 14 says, eh. 
doesn't matter. And are you saying we, we need to move closer? And are you saying when you, when you, when you say the gospel is our standard, are you saying that, um, this, the principle of self-giving love, mm -hmm. like yeah. there's these principles that we derive from the gospel yeah. and those are how we determine what's helpful. Right. And I, I'm being reductionistic when I say that, when I say it's, it's, you know, it's cruciform love. It is resurrection faith. That's the engine behind it. That is how we, the motives we should conform to, but it is really an aspiration to life to, you know, and we've spoken about this with Romans seven, is it working? Well, you'll know because you're becoming more integrated. You are more at peace with yourself and with others and with God, that God is, you know, you are in this right alignment with God that as we begin to to grow into Christ's likeness, we can begin to see that. And so back to the author of the Hebrew letter, he says, pay attention to those who are receiving the promises and follow their way of life. So there's, there are these promises that are implicit to the gospel that people receive. You can watch somebody becoming more like Jesus, right? You can watch these promises being fulfilled in their life. Well, follow what he's doing, you know? Um, so that we are, we are confronting a law that is uh, about cause and effect. It is about consequence that, are, that, is, that is temporal. And we can say, well, is this growing us? Is this moving us toward Christ-likeness, toward greater joy in him, toward a place of settled peace? Or, or is it confounding us and confusing us? Is it causing division among us and confusion within us? Well, that's bad, you see. Uh, and so once we understand that we're, where we're supposed to be going, then we can say, well, our understanding of, of this passage in the New Testament is it's retarding people's spiritual growth. It is inhibiting the expression of their gifts. It is causing division among the people of God. And it is um, slandering the gospel among the unbelievers. And so we say, well, that's a bad use of the Bible. And so the gospel becomes because it primary. has bad outcomes. Right. It has negative outcomes. Uh, according to what we understand about reality and the goal of the gospel. Once we understand the goal of the gospel, now the way we understand the Bible can become subject to that and we can remain consistent because the Bible itself calls us to follow the gospel. And so it's not that we're saying, well, that was old and this is new and we're going to update our belief system to make it more modern. No, we're being more ancient. We're trying to retreat to the core of what we've always believed as we make the gospel primary. Mike, I get the opportunity all the time to ask questions <laughs> like that. Yeah. So I'm giving you the chance to respond. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I, I don't think we're far apart. I think I said that at the last podcast and it's, it's, it's a conversation that always is a conversation. I think, I think, I think that the hard part for me to, to, to kind of buy in a little bit more on that is, is that it kind of puts us in a position where, and, and I think there's problems on both sides of this. So don't get wrong on, on one side of it. It's, it's hard for us to, to kind of go through the, the, the consequences of something and redirect and have to face those challenges, right? Is that, yeah, you go through it, you make mistakes, people are hurt. 
Um, I mean, I don't want to under, un, under determine that. I, I mean, lots of bad things. I might think about cults, right? Right. I mean, the, the, the challenges of, I mean, that's what came to my mind when you said those things is, but what about things like that, where it seems like we're heading down the right direction, but now after we wait for the outcomes and so many people are hurt and destroyed, now we see, oh, we were wrong. Let's redirect. Let's get back to what we think or we thought the essence or the core was. And on, but on the other hand, I would say, um, you know, my, my, my advocacy for something to start with is okay. That will, that will avoid those problems. This, this principle that we start out with will, will help us avoid those further consequences. Right. Get that. But on the, I think the response that Nathan would have is, well, well, when we choose that principle, how, how does it affect things throughout time and circumstances? And are we hurting people in the process of that, that should be possibly entertained and a part of what this, this core is? I think that would be the core, the response if I'm anticipating yeah. you correctly. Yeah. Well, we have to choose between those two, I think a little sure. bit. Well, the gospel, the gospel ethic is, you know, at its core, it's freedom. And, uh, you know, so Paul says, it, it, you know, it's for freedom that Christ set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't be, you know, enslaved again by a yoke of bondage. So if every individual has full access to God and is commanded to be free from the um, kind of oppressive nature of interpersonal um, controls and conformity, you never get a cult. If every person is, is trained that you, this is you and God, that it is, I'm not going to command uh, you implicitly. You're not listening to me implicitly, but they were all listening to the gospel together. And that your understanding and application of the gospel may differ from mine based on your background, your circumstance, whatever. But the intention behind it all is always the same. If we're always setting each other free and accepting one another, we never get this kind of large scale damage. The large scale damage really comes when there are these, these, uh, structures of control that come into a religious setting and now all hell breaks loose. Literally once somebody begins to co-opt spiritual power and then make it the, the scepter of their own little kingdom. Now there's all this damage that's done, but if uh, our implicit, um, ethic and the, and the the background of it all is that we must be free. Every individual Christian must be free under God. Then the damage doesn't happen. So we're, we're free to be a little bit reckless then because the, the truth has mitigated any real damage we can do to each other or any real damage we can do to ourselves. You know, there's no condemnation and that needs to be there so that we can learn through trial and error. But that trial and error and is, is going to really be on us. You know, uh, as, as long as the gospel is there, it's going to protect my brother from me. Um, and so I can be wrong and he can call me out. And we can disagree and we can disagree for the next 10 years, but no real damage is done because sooner or later, presuming there's a Holy Spirit, I'm going to realize the error of my way and I'll repent and God will reclaim all of those lost years and, and turn it into a part of his story. So there, there's a lot of freedom to fail under this new covenant, I think. And that's, 
I think that's exciting. That's, that's a yet another thing that argues for the gospel as our ethic. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I probably, I, I, when you mentioned earlier, the, 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 the challenge between a, a pragmatic view and a fundamentalist view, I don't want either one. I mean, and I mean, I think they're both challenging, but I, again, I, I, I understand where you're coming from and I understand it, that, that the way that you're making sense of it for sure. So I guess I'm somewhere in between those. I don't, I don't say, I wouldn't say in between. I just, am not comfortable with maybe either one of them at this point. That's, that's kind of probably what sure. I would say. Well, now keep in mind, I said enlightened pragmatism. Okay. <laughs> okay. You know, it, it's, it's that not only am I trying to move toward a goal, but we have a shared goal. And so I can say, Kit, what you're doing right now is not moving you towards your goal. You're moving away from you. So I, we can still confront one another. We can still hold each other accountable to an objective standard. It's just that that objective standard is, are we moving that way? You know? Um, and so I think what the concern over pragmatism is, is that it's just this moral license and, and that's not what I'm saying right. is I don't think what that's gospel to say. Um, it's, it's that we are now accountable for our intention and for the outcome of our actions. And it, and so when Paul called Peter on the carpet in Galatians two, as we talked about last time, Peter hadn't violated any rules, but he had acted in, in a, a polluted mixed intention that was obvious because of his inconsistent behavior and his actions had negative consequences for other people and for the name of Christ. So he could be called on the carpet. There's, there's an objective side to it, but it, the, you cannot prescribe it. You can't say never withdraw from the Gentiles and just eat with Jews. There may be a day when that's a, uh, that's the better thing to do, you know, but the standard in that case, be, it wasn't. So the standard can be prescribed. The standard is, um, is act in faith, act in love, mm -hmm. but it, how that plays out in circumstances is what cannot be the behavior itself. Yes. Right. Because, and we have precedent in the New Testament where Paul's like, you eat meat, you don't eat meat, you know? And I, I think that's really helpful if, and Paul seems to just allow not only some sort of, uh, diversity between two different Christians, but also for other people to disagree with him in Philippians three, he says, one thing I do, I forget what's behind. I press on to what's ahead. He says, and if you see it differently, that's okay. You know, that doesn't sound very top down directive. You know, uh, he's like, that's okay. You'll, you'll get it. He's not, he doesn't seem to be, he doesn't seem to need them to conform him in every case he's just like you know what you've got the basis and you're safe you rejoice in the lord always and you're safe the rest we'll learn through experience like the author of the hebrew letter says yeah do you think i mean and i don't want to open a can of worms before we're getting ready to end here but do you think that that um you know, based upon the position that we stand at now, that from the gospel and from these various circumstances that have been encountered by the, uh, the apostles, the writing of the epistles, uh, you know, reference to what's going on then that, that we could say, 
I think I know what your answer is before I even ask it, but I'll ask it anyway. Okay. <laughs> Um, that you can say, look, these, these certain circumstances from an, uh, an enlightened, pragmatic situation seems to give us an indication of how we should act in similar oh, yeah. circumstances. Definitely. Definitely. Okay. No, no doubt about it. I mean, I, let's take sexual ethics just because, Hey, we like those, right. Um, let's take circumcision. Okay. Right. Uh, well. I'm just kidding. So, you know, if we say, well, all things are lawful, so, you know, you, you should just go and, and play the field, maybe, you know, talk your wife into an open marriage and get involved in polyamory or, or whatever. And, um, and so we, you know, what does the gospel say about that? Uh, I, I can't find a, an argument from the gospel in favor of it. I can say that Christ has just one bride and, uh, he's exclusive <laughs> with her and he expects her to be exclusive with him. Um, and so I, I can say that as you multiply intimate partners, you devalue the other person, uh, and that it becomes exploitive that anything that is born from lusts of feeds into this, um, enslavement, this death that, uh, Paul talks about in Romans six, uh, that's, what's funny and incidental about the Romans, uh, Romans six twenty three. you know, for the wages of sin is death and the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord, uh, that has nothing to do with, uh, a lost person becoming a Christian. I think that's, um, it's sad that we've become so bad at using the Bible that we use, that we turn that into an evangelistic track. Um, when Paul is saying, if you sin, sin is your master and it pays in death. And so giving into lust, living a life of lust, it, it has, uh, uh, consequences for our souls. You know, Peter says, abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against your souls. And so that's, that's one of those things that there's never going to be a time where giving into fleshly lust is good for your soul. Because that's inherent to the gospel. And I think this right. is the connection that I yeah. think yeah. sometimes your listeners don't make mm -hmm. is that you see it as that's, that's inherent to the gospel. It is. Yeah. Crucifixion is a renunciation of the desires of the flesh. Right. Implicitly. I mean, we can just, you just keep mining the gospel story. You know, why should we be submitted to uh, the earthly authorities? Because Christ died under Pontius Pilate. You know, so any of these ethics that, you know, what we just continue to mine the gospel, what we'll find is, is that we, when we relegated it to, you know, the, I, I prayed that prayer, but we throw it behind us and now tell me what I need to do. Wow. <laughs> you know, what a disaster. We're supposed right. to keep it here and we're supposed to just constantly be probing it and mining it for its behavioral implications for us today. That's what Paul did. That's when you read the, the epistles, Paul didn't go into a cave and get words from God. He's, he's taking and he's probing the gospel for the question, you know, the answers to the questions that the church has asked him or to the resolution to the conflicts and the problems they were having. He's just mining the gospel for it. And we've lost that art. We've just not even thought that was something we should do. And I'm, I'm saying that in this day and age here, 21st century America, we have to have 
um, an ethic in the church that has more potential, more relevance. And if we learn again to mine the gospel, what we'll find are the answers to the questions that the somebody writing 2000 years ago had no clue would ever come up. And, and when we get good at that, when we can do that well, we can, we can show the world a degree of wisdom that they don't know exists and they'll come. Yeah. I mean, that's something I, I can agree with you on for sure. I think that's, that's really, those are good words. And I, you know, I want to practice that myself to try to find the gospel and figure out how it has implications in my life and the world that I live in for sure. I totally agree with that. Awesome. Great. Good talk. Another good talk. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks guys. I appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you so much. You too. You too. Yeah. Thanks Mike. We appreciate your contribution and we want to remind our listeners that if you have follow-up questions, if you've got questions you want us to answer, email us at discussion at faithrecoverypodcast.com. Thanks everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks Mike. Mike, good, good to be with you. See you bud. You too. See you guys. Bye.